Let me encourage you to take your Bible and turn with me to the second chapter of the Old Testament book of Esther that we've been going through. Uh, Pastor Wagner began our study in this book last Lord's Day, and we pick it up again this evening. I'll be reading uh, the entirety of chapter 2, and please follow along carefully in the reading of God's holy and infallible word. Esther 2, verses 1 through 23. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel, under custody of Haggai the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young women who pleases let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vasti. This pleased, this pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jokiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadashah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went in to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shaashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her 
and she was summoned by name. When the term came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, had, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the ninth, which is the month of Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vastai. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Would you pray with me and ask for God's gracious assistance in this, the ministry of his word. Let us pray. Oh, Holy Father, we would cry out to you with a felt sense of our own need. And we would plead with you to be merciful in sending the gracious assistance of your Holy Spirit. That he would open your word to our understanding. And Father, that not only would he open it to our understanding but that he may press home to our hearts with power its truth, that we may have our lives conditioned by and conformed to it. Father, grant us then your spirit in copious measures as we would engage in this, the ministry of your word, and we would ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, I think it's good that we must note, as we were encouraged last Lord's Day evening, that although God's name is never mentioned throughout the entirety of this book, His presence is everywhere in its pages. 
He is the unseen one, you will note, behind the scenes, directing all of the events almost unobtrusively, hiding himself, as it were, within the ordinariness of everyday events. And one is reminded of those words from which I draw the title for the sermon tonight in Isaiah 45 and verse 15, where God's people say to him, Truly, you are a God who hides yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. And there in the context of Isaiah chapter 45, the people were beginning to observe and recognize something of the magnificence of God's hidden purposes with them and for them. And that, was, uh, uh, that precipitated them in turn to utter those words, Truly, you are a God who hides yourself, O God of Israel." That is to say, you are God who works beyond our sensibilities, who works beyond our perception, who works virtuously, virtually inconspicuously, unnoticed in the events of history, pursuing and attending to your own purposes, while at the same time accomplishing your will and forwarding your designs. Truly, you are God who hides yourself. And that text of Isaiah, I think, applies aptly to the book of Esther because although God's name is nowhere mentioned, it is clear that he is everywhere present. And hopefully we'll see tonight, God willing, that even in the most ordinary and seemingly mundane events, God's hand is at work managing, fulfilling his encouraging designs for his wayward, faithless, but nonetheless covenant people. Now the story of Esther here in chapter 2 begins at this point to pick up, I think, with a measure of momentum. You'll notice that the story is somewhat similar to the plots of, of uh, modern novels and films. Uh, that we've seen on TV in which the audience or the reader of a novel is introduced to the various characters in the film or in the novel and who upon first glance appear to have really no real relationship to one another. And you find yourself wondering as you're being introduced to one character after another in the novel or in the film how their lives are going to intersect and intertwine with one another. And although the author appears to be discreet in the book of Esther with the introduction of each character to which he points us, you know that ultimately their lives are going to become interwoven in a very complex way. And that is precisely what is occurring here in the book of Esther. Step by step, little by little, we're being introduced to the main protagonist, the great heroine of the story in this book. We've been introduced to Ahasuerus, to Vashti, to Esther, to Mordecai, and to other people and events that God is conspiring to draw together in his providence to the end that all things may work together for his glory and the good of his people. 
And the stage, you'll notice, is being set step by step, step because God is behind the scenes arranging and disposing the affairs of men in, in fulfillment of his covenant faithfulness to his people. Now, the main aspect of chapter 2, and this in the first place, is dominated or it is taken up by what today we could describe as a beauty contest. Because that's really what it is in this chapter. It's a beauty contest that God uses to advance his sovereign purpose. And if nothing else, may it please God for you to be encouraged by this, that in all the events of life, God is never a passive bystander. He is not on the sidelines of life wondering what in the world is going on or what is going to happen. No, he's engaged in every single event forwarding for his own glory and the good of his people, his sovereign purposes, even to the point of working through, yes, a pagan beauty contest. Now, to be sure, I'm not suggesting that any of you will ever find yourselves in a beauty contest far be it from me. But it is a tremendous encouragement nonetheless, is it not, that we might never despair because always behind the seemingly ordinary and apparently incidental flow of events, God is accomplishing all of his bright designs. He is forwarding, fulfilling his purposes. And those words of our Lord Jesus in John chapter 5 and verse 17 are, I think, Words that ought to be engraved upon our hearts. My Father, Jesus says, is always working. And there is, I think, this great danger because we live today, you and I, in such dark times that we can almost get the impression that God is doing nothing. That this God who hides is absent from the scene. My Father, said our Lord Jesus, is always at work. He is never on vacation. Behold, he who keeps watch over Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. He is always at work. He's never a passive spectator. But as the sovereign decreeing God who ordains all things which come to pass for his own glory, he is working for the blessing and the good of his church. Now this period of time between the first chapter of Esther and the first verse of chapter 2, a period of about four years has transpired, which you can learn from verse 16 of our chapter when you compare it with verse 3 of chapter 1. About four years have transpired. And it is perhaps best explained by the fact that Ahasuerus is probably abroad during this period on a military campaign. Or at least Josephus, the historian, in his Antiquities of the Jews, intimates to us as much. And he's been away, but now King Ahasuerus has returned, and the king's young men approach him, and they do so, you'll notice, with this novel suggestion. They propose this beauty conquest to find a new queen because Vashti has offended him. 
And they say, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. Then verse 3, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and the scripture says he did so. So here is a proposal, a beauty contest. And now the the bevy of these beauties, the king is going to choose his queen. And who, looking on, would ever have thought that the God of Israel, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, is truly engaged and involved in such a sleazy event as that? And yet he is. Who would have thought that God was in the midst of that? Folk looking on would have thought, well, of all things, God would have nothing to do with something like that. But thrice blessed is he (laughs) to whom it is given the understanding who can see that God is in the scene, on the scene, when he is most invisible. That is so true here in Esther. You see, this is something that I think the prominent men and the prominent women of the world cannot begin to understand. They have their colloquies and their uh, convocations and they make their pronouncements and uh, they do various things. They operate under the perception, mind you, that it is they who are the ones who are directing the affairs of men. But they are before the Lord no more than a drop in the bucket as God reminds his people in the prophecy of Isaiah. And we need, I think, in these days to recover that divine insight into the eternities that recognizes the hand of God at work in the midst of the events of our world. And even when we cannot recognize him, to believe nonetheless that he is indeed at work fulfilling his purposes. We need to bear in mind with respect to every world event that God is in the midst of these working to accomplish his will and to fulfill his designs. He is no bystander in these events, be they great or be they small. But we can so easily lose sight of the presence and the purposes of God because they are so so often hidden by this veil of the ordinary and the mundane. And I'm convinced that one of the purposes of the book of Esther is to direct us to behold and to acknowledge the hidden and the unseen hand of God and to provoke us to consider as well Why is not God mentioned here? And I think that at least one of the answers to that question is that God is saying to us thereby because I am everywhere present even when my hand is undiscerned and my ways are hidden from your sight. And so these young men suggest the king Ahasuerus that they organize and put on this beauty contest and display of young virgins from which he will choose one to be his queen instead of Vashti. That in the first place. 
Now, it so happens, as we're told, you'll notice in verse 7, that Hadasha, the other name for Esther, was a young woman who had a beautiful figure, and we're told she was lovely to look at. Verse 5 simply begins, Now there was a Jew in Susa, Mordecai, who was her relative, and who just happened to be her guardian in the passing of her parents, her father and her mother. And I would simply note that how you look, how you appear, it is no accident of birth. It's not simply to be uh, explained by genes. Don't blame your looks on your father or your mother, in other words. God is behind every event from times eternal. And God has decreed, even in the genetic chain, that Hadashah, Esther, Esther, would appear for such a time as this, with the right figure and with the right face. God is behind all of these seemingly ordinary events. And if you don't like the way you look this evening, then take it to the Lord. It's ultimately between you and Him. And it just so happened that it is in the sovereign purposes of God that Esther has been framed for such a time as this. And she was gathered with the other women. And in that way, she was chosen to become a participant in this beauty contest. God is behind all of these events. And I think that there is a very noticeable similarity between what we're told here in verse 9 of chapter 2 and what we're told in the first chapter of Daniel, another post-exilic book. Remember that Daniel had been carried off into captivity a hundred years or so before the period that we're dealing with here in the book of Esther. Esther is probably part of the third generation of captivity in Susa. Daniel was among the first generation of the deportees from Jerusalem. But in Daniel 1 in verse 9, we read that God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And notice, we read the very same of Esther. And the young woman pleased him, that is, Haggai, the king's eunuch, and won his favor. Now, the author here leaves very much unsaid. There is something of an abbreviation, if you please, an abrupt curtailing of the narration. You almost want to stop and say, but tell us more, tell us more. But that's not the writer's purpose. He leaves much unsaid, but in telling us that Esther indeed pleased the eunuch and won his favor, I think the writer is perhaps suggesting to us that it was her character and perhaps even her modesty, if you please, that commended her to him. And perhaps that's why we're told in verse 16 that when the time came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had adopted her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked, verse 15, for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch who had charge of the women, advised. 
In other words, I think we're being told that she ultimately goes before the king without the gimmicks of beautification. I think that's what's being suggested to us here. The mind reels and boggles at the thought of women taking a year, as we're told in verse 12 here, uh, to beautify themselves in preparation for the king. But such are the characteristic cultural differences between that period at Susa and ourselves today. But here is this lovely lady raised up for such a time as this, and she is placed in this beauty contest. And let me make some observations at this point. And the first, and I trust this is not distracting from the thrust of the text. The first is this. What do you look for in a husband or a wife? Here we're given a very fulsome, but I think a rather inordinate picture of that for which Harris was looking. He was looking for a king who will, queen who will dazzle. That's what he wanted. He's looking for a, a queen whose figure is going to elicit comment from the crowd, whose face is going to impress and excite the crowd. And there is little doubt, I think, as the author portrays this picture to us, that he is depicting for us how the world views these things. What he desires above all is a stunner for a queen. He wants someone who he thinks is going to be a head turner. And people will look at Esther and will claim, oh boy, oh Ahasuerus, he knows how to pick them, doesn't he? You see, we live in a world that is obsessed with skin-deep beauty, as if good looks were the chief virtue in life. It is one of the great signs of a decaying culture, indeed of a civilization that is heading for disaster when it finds itself completely obsessed with the trivial and the superficial and the shallow and skin-deep beauty, as if appearance is everything. What do you look for in a husband or a wife? You may say, well, physical attraction is a normal thing. Absolutely. God made us physical beings, somatic beings. It would be natural and normal for someone... Uh, uh, to, to whom you're physically attracted to, to want to be with. But surely, infinitely, more importantly, in every way, ought to be the great prerequisite in our thinking regarding a husband or a wife is to look for a godly character. A woman who fears the Lord, says Proverbs 31 and verse 30, is to be praised. Indeed, someone whose love for Christ is conspicuously credible. Someone whose obedience to the word of God is not selective, but universal, as the old writers put it. It is heart given. Surely someone who commands your respect. And if an intended husband or wife does not command your respect, let them go. Let them go. No matter how much your heart may be engaged with them, let them go. Someone who is generous, 
Not so much with their credit card as they are with their heart. That's someone to whom you should look for a husband or a wife. I do believe that more and more Christian believers need to be marking out a way of living that sets us in dramatic, direct contrast to what we find in the fallen world around us. We live in a world obsessed with appearance. The kind of clothes you wear, the right label is utterly essential. These absurdities by which we can become dominated. Now please don't mistake my meaning. I'm not saying that Christians should intentionally dress drab or dowdy. Uh, Not at all, but we are to cultivate, as Peter says to men regarding women, that they cultivate the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of God. The truth is that physical beauty, no matter how beautiful it may be, ultimately withers. But the beauty of godliness never loses its luster. Never, ever loses its luster. In fact, the very reverse is true. It grows more and more in its radiance. So what do you look for in a husband and a wife? And if we have anyone this evening here who is in the category of considering a future mate and what that might hold for you, if you're looking, I think it's good. I think it's good for you to look. My problem is I don't think a lot of Christians look hard enough. And they do not look for the right things. It's good to look. But what are you looking for? Are you looking for that which will glorify God and bring praise and honor to his son? The second thing, and perhaps this is more germane to our text... How could a Jewish maid like Esther contemplate marrying a Gentile pagan? Those of you who are familiar with Ezra and Nehemiah, in fact, we heard that section read to us in worship this morning, that passage in Ezra uh, about marrying those outside of the covenant people of Israel. About 30 years or so after Esther, post-exilic books, Ezra and Nehemiah will know that there's a great concern, especially in Ezra 9 and 10, regarding intermarriage. It was one of the great signs, after all, of covenant declension on the part of the people of God. People who were marrying outside the covenant community of God. How could a Jewish maid like Esther, raised in the home of a man like Mordecai, contemplate being bullied, as it were, into this beauty contest and end up marrying a Gentile pagan? Well, interestingly enough, the writer doesn't tell us. Doesn't give us so much as a clue. He doesn't make an issue of it. You almost want to pause in the narrative and say, hold on a minute, hold on, what's happening here? I mean, this woman who's going to turn out to be the great heroine in the story and as it were the savior of God's people by means of her boldness and her courage and her faith, are you going to tell me that she could find herself where she ended up married to such a person? But for whatever reason, the writer 
doesn't tell us. And I think it's because he has a greater purpose. And that greater purpose is to show us how the Jews in the empire were going to be delivered from their enemies. Now we might desire to stop and to ponder and perhaps that was, it was something that Esther had to do. Perhaps she, she could do no other but to pursue this course. Maybe she thought and maybe Mordecai thought, well, she's chosen by the king. What's, what's possible beyond that? that? That could be the case. But then you're reminded also of Daniel in Daniel chapter 1. What could Daniel do? He was willing to risk death rather than eat what was ceremonially unclean food. There was great precedent in, in God's people for refusing to capitulate to the godlessness of the world. Yes, you might reason well, but Daniel was a first-generation exile. Esther was a third-generation exile. True indeed. But does that render the situation principally different? Not at all. Perhaps the most we can say is simply this. That the writer, the author, does not fill in the blanks, as it were. And therefore, we are not free on our part, you and I, to draw any inferences from this. But rather acknowledge that the text itself does not declare that God approved of this, but rather that he overruled in it and used it for his glory and his people's good. In other words, never be tempted to use Esther's example to lure you into an ungodly alliance, thinking, oh, well, here's biblical precedent. I mean, Esther did this because Scripture is your only infallible rule of faith in practice. We're simply not told there's a minimum, there's a bareness of language. But we must be clear in this. The text does not indicate that God approved of this marital arrangement, but that he overruled in it. And that's why we're to be normed and formed and governed and directed by the precepts and the principles of Holy Scripture. But then thirdly, you'll notice that twice in our chapter, Mordecai urges Esther to say nothing, nothing about her people and her kindred. We see this in verse 10. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, kindred for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And the same point is expressed once again in verse 20. Now why is this? It's because Mordecai has become compromised. Is it? Is that the case? Is he seeking uh, uh, maybe the stance or the position of least resistance? After all, they were Jews in the Persian Empire. I would answer no, because that does not square or correspond with what we read of righteous Mordecai. Mordecai is no coward. He is a courageous man in this story. It may be perhaps that in some way, some way Mordecai hopes to protect Esther by pursuing this course. He is exercising prudential care. 
He's saying, Esther, don't lie about your family. Don't lie about your origins. Don't lie about being a Jew. But there's at the same time no need to disclose everything about yourself at once. Be prudent. Be wise, Esther. Wait for the right moment. It's the sort of thing with which Christians in Muslim lands have to contend every day. How wise they have to be. How prudent they need to be. They have to be as wise as serpents but as harmless as doves, navigating that very thin dividing line. Now, there's little doubt, I think, that Esther would not have denied that she was a Jew. But perhaps we're simply being told here that there are times when a measure of discretion needs to be at the forefront of our minds. We need to look ahead. We need to be discerning and thoughtful. And wait for the right moment. Mordecai says to Esther, don't let it be known who your people or your kindred are. And Esther obeyed him. She obeyed her husband or her uncle. And I think it was wise counsel. And it was counsel that came from the one who had the place of a father in her life. And she obeyed him, honored him. And there's something very attractively humble about what we're being told. Almost in passing in the narrative regarding Esther. It's the incidentals there that are to be gathered by us in the reading of the narrative. Here's the kind of woman that God can use for such a time as this. Now, it's at this point that we're introduced more substantially, you'll notice, to Mordecai, who perhaps even more than Esther is the real hero of the story. We're told in verse 19 that he was sitting at the king's gate. Now, that doesn't mean, as we may understand it, that he was simply passing time there or begging. No, that was a place of privilege. That was a place where judgments would be pronounced. And it's quite probable that Mordecai was some kind of royal official, perhaps some minor royal official. He had access to the king's gate. That was a privilege. And while he was there, he uncovers, you'll notice, and this is all part of the story of Esther. He uncovers a plot to assassinate King Ahasuerus. Now, at the time, it appears to be just another for to, uh, uh, just another happening, just another discrete event. And you find yourself wondering, what has all of this have to do with Vashti being deposed with the, a beauty contest involving Esther and her winning favor to become queen? What does that have to do with anything in the story. It seems only to be another arbitrary event in the mix of events. But, and it's perhaps only as we look back from the end of the book to this scene that we can draw this conclusion, God is weaving his bright and glorious designs because what Mordecai does here, notice the last few words of chapter 2. And it was recorded in the book 
of the chronicles in the presence of the king. What was done here has profound significance for what occurs later on in this book. And so in chapter 6, to anticipate for a few moments, verse 1, that on the night, on that night the king could not sleep. Does God give sleeplessness to people? Sometimes. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And what Mordecai had done in helping to spare and save the life of the king was brought once again to the attention of the king. So it is God ordering in directing the events in this book, who is in the midst of the smallest details, orchestrating all of them to forward his purposes, yet unbeknown to anyone while he works behind the scenes. Don't imagine that Mordecai or Esther ever thought that they were caught up in some vast cosmic plan and purpose. Maybe Mordecai wondered what in the world is taking place. I mean, with Esther becoming queen, why should she be elevated to such a position of prominence? He may have thought that, but he had little idea, little idea that he and Esther were going to become the central figures in the salvation of God's people from their enemies. And we have little understanding, you and I, of what God is about in the ordinary events of our own lives. He is a God who indeed hides himself. I think it's very interesting, and I mentioned this just in passing, that Mordecai's primary loyalty to the Lord did not conflict with his being a good citizen. Do you notice that? It is Big Thin and Teresh, the Persians, who were the ones who posed a threat to good order in Persia. And it was the action of righteous Mordecai that promotes the good order of Persia, who uncovers and makes known this plot to assassinate the king. And I simply want to say in passing, to make this comment and no more, there is nothing that is incongruous with believers being good citizens and engaged with the political process to say no more in the from the text. But surely, as we bring our study to a close this evening, the great point that is being forwarded and underscored throughout this chapter that almost seems so prosaic, so mundane in its nature, is that nothing is insignificant. That nothing you and I do is insignificant. I'm confident that Mordecai had little understanding that what he does here in the uncovering of that plot and his making it known to Queen Esther would ever have such dramatic and blessed ramifications for God's people. He would have little understanding of that. But everything as a believer and everything as a believer that we do is being woven into every moment of our lives, into the tapestry of God's bright and eternal designs. 
And this is a truth then that elevates our lives, yours and mine. Maybe some of you think that you're passing through times of great ordinariness. Life is humdrum. Little seems to be happening. Please remind yourself again and again that God is in the midst of the humdrum and the ordinary. And it is that particular truth that elevates our lives. Every little event of our lives is woven in that, threaded and wedded to that as part and parcel of it. Every event is significant. I don't think that means that we should always be pondering, well, what is the significance of this or that? As if we're to weigh our every thought and action in that particular way. But it does mean that as much as possible, whatever we're doing, we're to obey God's word and to pursue his ends. Our business is not to peer into the meaning of everything. For God himself will unfold the significance of such events in his time. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed are for our, us and our children to do them, that we may do all the words of the law. So what we see in this chapter is a series of apparently disconnected events. But they're not disconnected in the providence of God. And we only ever see you and I but a small fragment of the big picture, do we not? Sometimes we see a few fragments, but God alone, as it were, he's in the control tower. He is directing the affairs. He has in view the panorama of the whole picture from beginning to end. And that's why in the believing life, your calling and mine is always to do the next thing that God's word tells us to do. What is guidance? It's doing the next thing. The next thing in obedience to God. That's at the heart of the life of faith. And who God is and what he is about, I think, elevates everything about us so that we can plod through this world confident that our lives, all of us, our lives have significance for we're part of the great design of the everlasting God. Now, if you are here and you're not a Christian tonight, that is lost to you. That is lost to you because you see no ultimate significance to your life. You're outside the saving purposes of God in Christ. And God is calling you, indeed directing you to himself. You know, God's call to us for salvation is a gracious call. He lovingly draws us to himself. But he does so in such a way that we cannot but behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So God is at work. He's always at work. And that is where we sink our anchors as Christians. So the next time you think in, you see yourself caught up in the humdrum and in the ordinary, so something that seems so dull and, and seemingly so boring that you wonder to yourself, goodness me, what on earth is going on? Remind yourself of this. 
my father is at work and he is forwarding his great designs and he is a hands-on God and I am in his hands. Let's pray.